Coming soon to a city near you, Vinitaly Roadshow. Have you ever wondered how to attend Vinitaly for free? Are you a wine trade professional interested in a sponsored trip to Vinitaly International Academy or Vinitaly, the wine and spirits exhibition? Coming soon to Princeton, New Jersey, Harlem, New York, and Chinatown in New York City, Cardiff in Wales, London in England, and Roost in Austria. We'll be giving away our new textbook, Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0. Find out more about these exciting events and for details on how to attend, go to liveshop.vinitaly.com. Limited spots available. Sign up now. We'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and my guest this week is a very old friend, meaning that we've been friends for a long time and he's very old. Howard Bernstein, welcome to the show. So I could do this, but I'll leave it to you. Give us a, a quick bio of you and your history and how we first met and what you're doing now. Uh, started in the restaurant business, um, fell in love with wines, just making wine lists and stuff. and Eventually, I uh, got my first job as a distributor salesman down in Florida at NDC and then moved over to Southern. And um, from there, I, I got into the uh, imported wine business through um, Palace Brands. And that's where we met at Palace Brands. I believe you were working on Flandia Vodka at the time, but we had an outstanding, an outstanding Italian portfolio. Actually, at that time, it was probably the best Italian portfolio in the industry. And um, it was quite a pleasure to work it. And there, that led me into the wine business, and I worked for a couple of different companies along the way, obviously Southern and Palace Brands, uh, uh, Palm Bay, uh, another great company I worked with. And uh, then we, uh, after my last job with Imperial Brands, which uh, we brought in uh, Sobieski Vodka, and we hit a million cases in, in, in uh, four years, which was a record time. And um, after I left them, I started my own little import company, and here we are called Hill City Imports. Well, you said you started in the restaurant industry, and, and the, one of my favorite stories that, that I've taken over, and I use it as mine, but why don't you tell it about uh, the sommelier at the Breakers? So at my first job in the industry, which was a salesman for NDC, I was the first wine-only guy, and all the other salesmen were thrilled not to have to sell wine. So I got all the big accounts. I mean, I was a newbie, and I got all the big accounts. I got the Boca Hotel, the Breakers Hotel, and at the Boca Hotel, there was a, um, a chef sommelier, Charles Deweese. I still remember an Austrian guy with the slick back white hair, you know, with the testament and the, and, and the tuxedo. And he was a terrific guy. And my company was doing absolutely no business there. And little by little, he took me under his wing and we started doing tremendous business. And one day I just asked him, I said, Charlie, uh, what's your favorite wine? And he said, Howard, it's the wine I just sold. And, and that stayed with me my whole life. Uh, in the wine business. People like to talk about all the uh, nuances of wine. But at the end of the day, 
It's the one you just sold. Yeah, it's a really powerful statement, which is why I use it. But what what was your um, initial introduction to Italian wines? And I think it's something that we share with Philippe. Well, my introduction was in the distributor business. We had a portfolio with many, many wines, of which some were Italian wines. But that's not, uh, I mean, that was just part of my life at the time. But when I came to Palace Brands and um, I met Philip Di Belladino, his uh, contagious enthusiasm was just astronomical. And I got to go to Italy with him a few times. And I just never looked back. I mean, it was, I was, and I've been to wine countries all over the world, not all over the world, but most of the wine growing world. And till this day, there's just something special about Italy for me. Um, I've done business in France and Germany and South America, and but there's just something special about Italy that um, right now in our portfolio, it's 100% Italian wines. Well, cool. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, well, give us a, a summary of, of Hill City Imports and how it started and what it is. It started after after my contract with uh, Imperial Brands, Sobieski Vodka, was over. I had a one-year non-compete, and I got on the plane and got some brands, and then I... Um, Actually, you and I, uh, at that point, there, I got a few brands. Then you and I decided to form a company, and we actually worked together bringing in some brands. But then later on, uh, you wanted to do writing your book and all the other stuff that you do. And uh, so I formed another partnership with a, a couple of very good friends. Um, uh, my one friend, uh, Tom San Giacomo, one of my best friends. And then also with um, uh, Alir and John Petici, who own Fiorino's Restaurant in uh, Summit, New Jersey. And even at that time, I wasn't aware of how deep um, the knowledge and exposure that O'Lear had in both meeting some of the best producers in the world and tasting the best wines, probably from the time he was nine years old. He got, he got tremendous exposure. And, um, and that, that adds a lot when you, have that, when you have that variety of exposure where I've only tasted the wines that I've sold at, at any given time. He got to taste wines that everybody sold. And it made a big difference. Right. So he's uh, in, in operations at Fiorino's. Tell us about Fiorino. I mean, it's this wonderful uh, restaurant in Summit, New Jersey. But more than that, it has something that makes it very unique. It has become an institution. Um, the family has been, the Petici family has been in the restaurant business. They've owned several operations in New York, uh, Mineta's Tavern, uh, other, other excellent uh, four or five places uh, over the time in New York. And uh, they opened up Fiorino's, I think, 27 years ago in Summit. And it's, it's almost an institution. If you sell, want to sell fine wine in, in anywhere in New Jersey, they have to be one of your first stops. You know, to, to, they just have an outstanding wine list. The, the food is outstanding. And they're busy for 27 years. This is incredible. A uh, restaurant story. It's absolutely incredible. You mentioned my book. Thank you very much. And... Uh... One of the things that happens to me and you all the time and has been for years is people come up to us and say, you know, can you help me find an importer or would you import my wines? And um, that's always a challenge. How do you respond to, to people um, and do it in, in a nice way? And part of the, the challenge is finding out whether or not they're, quote unquote, ready for the U.S. market. And in fact, you were the one that came up with the idea of my book and now my podcast get U.S. market ready. So thank you for that. I when do the royalties that. come? <laughs> as soon as Stevie sends them to me. Okay. So let's flip that around though, because you've done something I think that's really great is you have 10 basic questions that you ask to prospective brands 
that uh, are looking at you as an importer. Can you walk us through each of those and, and tell us not only what the question is, but why you ask that question? Well, I, I got to be honest. That, that I developed that list for the last Vin Italy um, last April. And what had happened over the past two years, there was no Vin Italy. And new brands were a lifeblood of any business. And we were not able to get any new brands because there was no Vin Italy and there was no travel to Italy. And we had no new brands. One new brand I did do over Skype. And we started out with a, a Barolo, fantastic wines. And the gentleman, he, he didn't speak any English. Uh, so he had his export director translate. And over Skype, after 10 minutes, he got bored. And so that was our whole meeting. And it's not the same as going and having dinner and walking through the winery and asking all the questions that you have to ask. And it wound up not to work out very well. I mean, we did okay with the wines. We do, which actually we were doing well with the wines. But in his mind, he had a different perception of things. I truly believe that wouldn't have happened had we met face-to-face in the traditional, have the dinner, go to the winery, spend a day or two with, with the people. I, I don't think we would have had, had the, uh, the same uh, end to the situation. So we needed new brands. Now we're going to Vin Italy, and we had to make every second count because we two years we haven't had any new brands. So I wanted to eliminate... Uh, all of the people very quickly that we didn't have a chance to do business with or that didn't want to do business with us. So I developed a list of very simple questions. And uh, when I'm through with the list, we actually even actually part way through the list. We know right away if it's not working out in 10 minutes, I'm on to the next, I'm on to the next appointment. And one of the things I want to interject here is that uh, we're going to clean up that list and I think you're going to make it available to our listeners. And if they want to get a copy of it, um, who do they reach out to? Uh, Howard at hillcityimports.com. Howard at hillcityimports.com. Okay, so let's start with number one. Okay, so number one, the first question was, uh, are you currently being imported into the United States and which states? Uh, we only we operate now in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and, um, and um, Connecticut. Uh, we're probably looking at Massachusetts coming on next. But if they already have importers in, those, in some of those markets, you know, we might take a winery that's, that's open in New York and New Jersey and not in Connecticut. But if they're in three out of the four markets, it doesn't pay to handle it. So we know right away if we're in, even in the ballgame. Then we always ask the question, were the wines in the United States prior to this meeting? And that's very important because if they were in the market before, then there's a history and that could be good or bad. And then we could have closeouts and we could have distributors with inventory that they want to get rid of. And it just it helps us know that the market's clean or not. And what kind of pass and what price do they used to sell for? All that's very vital information. If they used to sell for $29.99 and now they want $59.99, I'm going to have a problem. So, you know, just by talking to distributors. So we like to know the, where they are currently and the past. The next question is uh, um, what kind of support are they willing to uh, Wine distribution in the United States is not free, uh, contrary to what many people believe. It's actually expensive. And uh, so we ask, do they participate with OCM funds? And if not, do they participate with their own funds? J- just simple things, nothing complicated. In-store tastings, winemaker dinners, winery visits to the market, simple stuff. We're not looking to reinvent the wheel. These are usually small wineries that you know have small production. If they can do those few things, then, you know, we have something to work with. 
So you're looking for somebody who understands what's needed. They understand a little, at least a little about the U.S. market and that it's not just a matter of, of uh, selling the wine at seller, that they've got a market and support it. But, and, and because the wine is good. Everybody's making good wine today. That's usually the first answer we get. Tell me about yourself. And in fact, if you look at these questions, if you're a winery and you're thinking about trying to find an importer in the U.S., the strategy that works, we've found out, is preempt the questions from being asked in the first place by being upfront with this information, and you will appear different and uh, more business-like to uh, prospective importers. One that uh, you had commented on earlier was, what would success for you look like? That, that's a question to the winery. Well, that was the next question, is expectations. So uh, we've gotten through the markets, we've gotten through the history, we've gotten through the support, but now a very crucial question is, what is going to make you happy. I don't want to get involved in a situation where I buy three, four pallets of, you know, of good wine. And, and I think we had a great year and you come in and then the supplier says, well, the winery says, well, gee, we, we were expecting 10 pallets, you know? Well, so I like to clear that up in the beginning. What are the expectations? What are you going to consider the winery to be a, a good year? Is it going to be three pallets, 20,000 euro, whatever the number is, but I have to know what those are to see if we can meet them. And if we can't meet them, there's no point. I'm not going to waste my time. That makes great sense. And a lot of times people are kind of hesitant or sensitive to saying that. And I, I don't understand the hesitancy or the reason why, because if you don't know where you're going, how are you going to know when you get there? If you put it out there, then everybody knows what the deal is. Uh, it seems to make you know sense to me. And I will say the feedback I got from using this list was extraordinary. Many people commented on, on what they thought was very professional because I wasn't wasting their time either. Which is why we're doing this interview. Okay. So the next one is the one that uh, sometimes is, is the first one. Which is the... Um, Do you have scores? So scores are... A, a very, I, I deal with that situation uh, in the trade particularly uh, very with, with very a lot of sensitivity. Um, some people like scores and think it's wonderful. And other people who maybe consider the scores to be almost... Um, not relevant. If they like the wine, they'll buy the wine. If they like and they buy the wine, they're going to sell the wine. So, and that's enough of them. So generally I open up the conversation with these wines have some very good scores as they may be relevant for you or not, but I did not invent this system. You know, the score system was here before I got here. Uh, and, and some people like it and some people don't, but my experience has been that consumers seem to like it. But, you know, some stores prefer not to put shelf talkers up. And they like to buy wine that they like the taste of, and they sell it on that. And that's fine. But I like to cut to the chase and find that out right away. Because right away, if you take out some shelf talkers, oh, I don't look at those. You know, I don't care about those. Okay, then that's fine. But in the, in the meantime, by taking out the shelf talkers anyway, I've already preset the mindset that this got 92 by James Suckling or the wine enthusiast. So right away... Whether they like it or not, we've established the wine has a good rating, you know, whether they decide to use it or not. I, I use it as the first question, something you taught me, actually, because if they don't have scores, that tells me they're not ready for the U.S. market for all the other exactly. questions that you're going to ask, because the, the scores are the basic thing. And it's something you can do now in advance of um, trying to find an importer, because it's going to be one of the first questions they ask. And if the answer is no, the conversation just ended. So first thing you do, get scores. Well, no, no, the conversation doesn't have to end there. But why don't you send them in for scores and then talk? 
then call me back. And you produced an excellent list of all of the all of the uh, tasting events that one can send, and uh, you should make that list available. Well, it is. It's on uh, it's on bevologyinc.com If you go to my blog, it pops up as the first post. So, uh, and I personally, I, I use that list all the time. I send it to everybody, even if they've got one or two scores. There's other people out there. You know, that, you know, well, all you need is one or two good ones. You don't need a half a dozen. You need one or two good ones. That's it. Just to get past that objection. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Uh, sustainable production. It, it, it's become now, it's become very important to know about the sustainability and also the um, uh, the organic status or biodynamic status of certifications. We have wineries that are producing organically without a certification, but they've been producing organically for years and they eat off of the land that they that they that they grow the grapes on, they grow crops. They have uh, game in the, you know game that they hunt and, and eat, and so they they've been producing organically for years before before it was even popular. So, uh, but now uh, retailers and consumers want to know the sustainability and also the, uh, the the status of the certification. Very, it's become very important. That doesn't mean you can't sell wine that's not certified. You can, and we do. Um, but it, it, it is an issue that, you know, you have to have your hands around. So the way I like to think about it is organic and biodynamic are very specific things that have regulatory entities that guide that. But the word sustainable, sustainably produced, is not very specific, but it is the one that resonates most with consumers. Because it's the simplest to understand. I save energy. I save water. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to understand. Uh, if you're biodynamic, you're, that auto, automatically makes you organic. And so these things become, ultimately, we'll, we'll get to that, I think, in, in a little bit, but these are things you want to make sure you say on the label. Being organic and not communicating it on the label means you're not organic. <laughs> no one would know. Very much so. And, and, and uh, biodynamic, uh, you know, if you're organic, you're not necessarily biodynamic. If you're biodynamic, you're necessarily organic. Okay, next. Pricing terms. Uh, and, and, and margin. Well, once again, uh, terms became a, a very crucial issue uh, with the um, supply chain backup. Uh, we actually had wines that we ordered and took two and a half months to get in. I went two months with no inventory and some items because we could not get wine here. So the, obviously the terms of 90 days from leaving the winery uh, didn't exist. So I have very good suppliers and they all cooperated and Instead of being 90 days from when you left the winery, we were doing 90, 120 days after it landed because we didn't know when it was going to land. It was, it was so unpredictable. So terms are very, very important. And also, you know, for us to maintain a, a, a good inventory, you need to have suppliers that work with you. And we're very fortunate. Once again, we have excellent suppliers. I think it's important, too. And this, again, it's something you told me that, sure, you're, you're going to agree on an XLR price and that's what you're going to purchase it for. And then it goes into the U.S. and all those things happen. But at the end of the day, the philosophy is everybody in the system has to make money. If, if, you're, if someone in, in this uh, structure is not making money, it's not good for anybody. No, it doesn't work. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to stop working. So it requires that the suppliers have an understanding of how U.S. price structures work. I show it to them. If they want to know it, I'll show them a price structure. I'm not embarrassed that I make money at what we do. We're supposed to make some money. Some items we make a little more. Some items we make a little less. You know, it depends on what the, you know, depending on the trade. 
you know, it depends on the items and, and what the trade will bear. Okay. And then the next one is uh, capacity. Um, once again, uh, if I can only get one pallet a year and that's all I'm looking for, that's fine. But you have to know what you're working with. That's not only capacity, it's also allocation, especially Brunello's and Barolo. It's how, how much will you allocate me for, for the year as opposed to what the production is. I'm only one of many people that buy from them. And uh, Brunello and Barolo being, uh, uh, you know, just uh, being a little bit more rare than other wines or, or smaller production, uh, total production. Um, so it's not only knowing what the capacity is, but what's my allocation going to be. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Uh, that reminds me of a story. I remember being in Montalcino with you at uh, one of the suppliers you work with, and they invited us to stay for lunch. This was probably about noon or so. We thought that was wonderful. Problem was the the producer only spoke Italian. His wife only spoke, uh, well, actually, she spoke a little English, but principally Albanian. She was Albanian. And their young daughter was serving, who was only like 11 at the time, was serving as her interpreter. And it was one of those meals that the 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 dishes just kept coming out. And we're in an hour, we're in two hours, we're in two and a half hours, we're maybe on course three or four or five, I don't know, and Brunello number four, five or six. And so we're getting very, very happy and very, very full. And it kept coming. That was a wonderful experience. We finally, it was like five o'clock and we had to say, we got to go. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah, no, I do very well. Uh, by the way, the, 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 that's one of the wineries that's been producing organically for years. And... Um, and all of that food we ate at that meal was produced on the property. Uh, three different kinds of meat, all the vegetables, all the grain, everything was grown on the property. Certainly the wine. And that, that goes with that great phrase about um, if it grows together, it goes together. <laughs> that was a perfect example of that. Okay. And then uh, what about labels? Well, honestly, I, I'm not a big label guy. I mean, very, very few times will I make recommendations for a label to change if the selling proposition is good and the pricing is right and the quality is right and the scores are right, the wine, I, I think the wine's going to sell almost regardless of the label, unless it's god-awful. So uh, I'm not a big label guy. But labels have to t deliver the message. And you've been saying this for years. Um, you have a back label that you can give away a lot of information on. And you have a, a certain amount of space on the front label. And you got to make use of all of it. Um, and the more you use it, the better it is. Yeah, as a, as a piece of advice, I, I tell uh, wineries that I work with, um, you know, I, I'm not going to comment on the design of the label itself, but you want to make sure that it's using words that explain the two things that American consumers want to know about a given wine. What does it taste like in words that I understand? And I'm not looking for sauteed gooseberries. Um, looking for things that describe it in, in, in real terms. And the second is, is it going to go with what I'm making for dinner? So you do have this space on the back label. And I see a lot of people who, who don't include any verbiage at all. So here's an opportunity, since you got to do a new back label anyway for a new importer, to collaborate with that importer to find out what are the key selling points that you want to say about your wine so that when somebody does pick up the bottle, looks at the label, says, I like this, they're going to turn the bottle around. 
Now, I've heard a lot of research, and I've done the research, which says, oh, people don't do that. But I got news for you, and you know this too. Just stand in a liquor store and watch what people do. There's not enough information on the front label, so the first thing they do is turn it around. And the next thing they do nowadays is take a picture of it and look it up on uh, some of the online sites. And that's especially, especially true if there's not a shelf talker that gives them instant information. No question about it. I, I will say one thing, that I think that if your label design is for a place where there is not going to be any hand selling when at a huge grocery store, a big box chain, the label becomes a little bit more important to jump off the shelf. But in a, in a, in a, in a, in a smaller wine shop, the person who owns the shop or runs the shop buys the wine and sells the wine, regardless of what the label looks like. Okay. Pretty much. And so those are nine basic questions. I'm sure people could add or, or subtract some, but they, they do kind of say what allow you to make a judgment on whether or not this person is U.S. market ready, to coin a phrase. <laughs> and uh, then what happens? One of the items on the list is, of course, at the bottom, what's the follow-up plan here? We've answered all these questions. Um, it seems that we have an opportunity to do some business. What do we do next? Do we meet you at the winery after in Italy? Um, are you going to send samples to the U.S.? Um what do we do to follow up here? Are we going to trade emails, send pricing? Set, you know, so you got to have a follow-up plan. If you just walk out the door and say, I'll call you later, there's nothing concrete. And then if you're seeing, uh, as I said at this last minute, Italy, we were walking six to seven miles a day. We saw a, a lot of wineries. You have to take very copious notes. Otherwise, <laughs> you didn't think I knew a word like copious, did you? That's 35 years of experience <laughs> working with you. Yes. <laughs> So, so the follow-up plan is very important. Well, so, you know, it's always good to have winemaker information. Who's the winemaker? Just to get a little bio on the winemaker. Well, an action plan. I think that that's often that that, that um, applies to business in general, not just in, in the wine business. Oftentimes people, yeah, it was a nice conversation. But if there is no action planned with a day uh, or a date on who's going to do what and when are they going to do it, um, you haven't really accomplished anything. Uh, just had a nice conversation. And if you just think about it, I, I, I saw 15 wineries a day. They saw three, 30 or 40 potential customers in a day. You have to be able to follow up soundly. So uh, are you going to Italy this year? Absolutely. And uh, we're going. Uh, tell us what you're looking for. You know, because of COVID and we worked so hard this last year, we brought in like four new wineries, five new wineries this year. And that's a lot to, that's a lot to absorb. In one year, so in the wines, I, I think you know we've always got our eye. We're always looking for something good, um, no question about it. Um, but I think we're going to look at some some spirits, um, some Italian spirits. I'm not sure exactly what yet, but uh, we actually we um, we're in the process now of bringing in an absolutely exquisite vermouth. I'm a little expensive, and ver vermouth and amari are hot. Uh, I've never tasted vermouth like this in my life. And and um, so we're looking to bring some vermouth in. That's a wine base, but we're looking to move into the, a little bit of spirits. You know, obviously, grappa. So you're talking about grappas or you're talking about vodkas and gins? And grappa, gin, uh, I, I don't know. A limoncello, maybe. Standard stuff. We're not looking to, to re, re, redesign the entire world here. We just want to, you know, just standard stuff. We have good customers. Our customers like to buy from us. So, you know. Well, they like to buy from you. 
Um, so w- what is the, the makeup of your customers? Is it uh, off-premise, on-premise, or pretty much even? Both. Uh, I, I would say uh, volume-wise, um, it's probably 75% uh, retail, 25% restaurants. Um, but the restaurant side grows every day. We, we, we get more and more accounts every day. So a question about uh, changes in, in terms of restaurants and their buying habits. You know, we saw during COVID that a lot of people obviously had trouble staying afloat. A lot of them sold off their inventory just to generate cash. Has there been replenishment? Are the wine lists different? Are they narrower, Not maybe not as deep um, as they used to be? What do you see happening in the on-premise? I, I think we saw that during uh, COVID, um, as, as restaurants started to reopen, both menus and wine lists were slimmed down. But I, I think that's more now. Oh, really? Uh, things are back to pretty much normal, I think. Uh, I, from what I can see, you know, busy restaurants are busy. Uh, they, they're selling a lot of wine. Do you think there's more or any change in openness to, say, the not, not the Pinot Grigios, Prosecco's, Chianti's of the world, whether it be Primitivo or Sicilian wines? We know Sicilian wines are, are hot, but other regions, uh, Campania. Uh, and a lot of those wines that are not necessarily as well recognized as some of these other varieties. Do you see more interest in those kind of non-traditional Italian? It's not really the right word, not traditional Italian, but for Americans, non-traditional Italian wines. Well, well, you could say, you know, by uh, not traditional, not recognizable would be a better, a better, I think, a better way to describe it. Everybody knows about Chianti and Barolo and Brunello, you know, but um, when you go to Sagrantino, uh, you know, Maltafaco and, and, and talk about Sargentino, then it depends. There are people who are very interested in that and very open to everything. I mean, look, look what's happened to some wines outside of Italy, you know, neighboring Italy. Um, you got wines that, that now that you wouldn't have thought from um, Moldavia and from, um, uh, from, uh, from, from Kosovo. And there are wines from, and again, what, what's the, I'm, I can't think of the one now. Uh, Serbia, Croatia. Croatia, thank you. Croatia, yeah. Yeah, some of the Croatian wines, they kill it. I've been in Italy last year. Yeah, that was, there, there were crowds around the booth. I mean, 10 deep, you know. So definitely, there. I think there's a more openness as the wine world grows. We're going to bring in some Albanian wines. Cool. Well, the, uh, the Fiorinos folks uh, are Albanian, so there's certainly that as a, as a motivator. But when you think about Balkan wines, uh, that fits into the same category of... Uh, no, we tasted the wines. The wines were... Absolutely, very professionally, state of the art produced. They were they were excellent. The wines were excellent. So, how do you sell a wine from a region that people don't recognize? In Italy, maybe Molise or uh, uh, the Marche. You know that, that aren't front and center of what people are looking for. You have to go to the right customers. You know, you, there, there are people who 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 uh, who really who, who love to be, be the first guy on the block with something new. You know, they, they don't want what the guy around the corner has. They want something totally unique and different. So you have to go to the right customer. Uh, and once again, based on quality, it's, it's, you know, and if you have a score and the wine is quality, uh, when you present it, people will taste it and have a very open mind about it. So what's next for uh, Hill City? You're going to Benitoli. You're looking for um, uh, a couple of new brands. You're working your new brands. Uh where is the company going? Expansion, Massachusetts, a few other states this year, I hope. Um, 
you know, we, we got to, we added uh, two states last year. We added Pennsylvania and Connecticut last year. This year, we hope to add a couple more states and um, increase the portfolio a little bit. Uh, not too much more, but increase it a little bit. And um, just try to keep on growing, you know, at the rate we're growing. You know, I'm reminded, uh, I had mentioned early on in this interview that we've known each other a long time and you're an old friend. I'm reminded, and you mentioned Filippo Bellardino. I asked him once, I said, Filippo, when are you going to retire? He said, Steve, look, I travel around the world. I, I stay at the finest hotels. I eat at the best restaurants. I meet the most interesting people and I drink the best wines and somebody else pays for it. He said, if I retired, I'd travel around the world. I'd stay at the finest hotels. I'd eat at the best restaurants and drink the best wines, but I'd have to pay for it. I'm never retiring. <laughs> I've been kind of living my life that way. What's what's next for you? Um, I I, I don't think that far out. You know, I, I, I'm trying to. No, I, honest to God, I I, I think that um, uh, this Hill City project, when we started it, it, it was supposed to be a lot easier than it wound up to be, and it didn't work out that way. And we started with case number one and account number one by ourselves and built this brick by brick. And uh, I got to say that we've. Uh, we've come a long way, but that's, you know, it was supposed to be a lot easier than this when we first began. It didn't work out that way. And um, whatever we have, we built ourselves and it's ours. There, there's a big difference in selling wine into a retail store versus getting the retail store to, to, to sell it to a consumer. And so from a importer point of view, how does that impact your philosophy and the way you work the market? The, the wine's not going to sell itself. Uh, shelf talk has helped tremendously, but you know your relationship with the with the store owner or the restaurant owner has a lot to do with it. But then they're also in a store. Uh, if you participate in in-store tastings enough times, uh, re- and, and even repeating in the same accounts, sometimes you develop a customer base. And all you need all you need is three or four guys to come in and buy a bottle every week, and you're in business. You know it's not brain surgery. On premise, you know, if you get it by the glass, you get people to taste it. They'll buy a bottle if they taste a glass if they like the wine. So it's not it's, it's not really uh, that complicated. Okay, so I like to end uh, my interviews by asking, "What's the big takeaway of of all the things that we discussed? What is the one thing that uh, listeners to this show and recognize and mostly trade can do or use or take action on from having listened to us talk?" I, I think. Um, Oh, oh, I'd say about every three or four months, I get a phone call from somebody that I don't know, maybe every six months, I don't know. And they'll say to me, oh, boy, somebody gave me your name and I, I got this container of wine and my brother-in-law said he was going to sell it all. And it's, he hasn't sold, he sold three cases. And there's 800 cases in the warehouse for two years now. What am I going to do? I said, well, I, I said, and then they say it's white wine. So now we're three vintages behind. And I, I said, there's nothing you can do. You can sell up a cooking wine. I, I said, but the fastest, you get a dollar a case right now, or $3 a case, because there's nothing you can do. And I think it comes down to that uh, anybody with a checkbook can buy wine, but very few people can buy wine and sell it and make, and make money at it. And, and, and so, you know, uh, people come to Vin Italy, they, oh, I'm going to buy some wine. And, they, and the winery sells them the wine. Whether it's on credit or for cash, doesn't make it very much, um, and nothing happens after that. Uh, that's that's the end. So I, I just think that it's uh, both from the winery side and from the importer side, you have to be careful and you have to you know have a plan 
They have to know what you're doing. And it's good to know when you buy wine that you got a home for it. We, we, we tend not to buy on speculation. We, we, we're, we're very careful about that. We, we get samples ahead of time. We taste our customers ahead of time. And we know when the wine comes, not all of it has to be gone, but we know we've got distribution to some degree when the wine lands. So it's a, you know, it's a matter of planning. Okay, so we're talking this week with Howard Bernstein, who is Managing Director of Hill City Imports. And what we've been going over is uh, the 10 basic questions he asks new uh, prospective producers. And if anybody wants uh, to get a copy of that, Howard's going to share it. Howard, give us the email address again. Howard at hillcityimports.com. So I want to say thank you, Howard, for sharing your time with me, both here and in all the other work that we've done done together. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Your name precedes you. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Depends on who you ask. We, we thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed having you as a guest on the Italian Wine Podcast. This is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with another edition. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast.